The views expressed on this podcast are those of the persons appearing in the podcast and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Frankham or any of its officials. The appearance of guests on or the mention of third-party information, products or services or organizations within the podcast does not imply any approval, recommendation, certification or endorsement of them or of any entity they represent. Hello and welcome to a brand new series of the Rebooted Open Fire podcast sponsored by Frank and Risk Management Services, a new series of podcasts focusing on the fire safety industry and tackling the current issues facing responsible persons in the commercial and residential sectors. My name's Dave Calvert and my co-presenter is Tom Gilbert. Hello, Tom. Hello, David. How are you? Not too bad. What have you been up to for the last six months, Tom? <laughs> I haven't been doing anything, Dave, just trying to get the podcast going again. So I hear you've won another award. Well... It depends on how you judge winning an award. Okay. Did you not win it then, Tom? No, I didn't win it. What, what, where did you come? Um, I came second. So you came... The first loser. Wow. It's disappointing. That must have hurt. Well, I could talk about this at length, Dave. Who, be, who beat you? Um, I don't know who it was, actually. <laughs> that's, that's very There's a picture of his face on my dartboard. I dart think board. you know exactly who it was. Okay, well, well done for that, Tom. Second most popular person in the industry. It wasn't popularity. I would have come fifth if it had been popularity. It was influence. Yeah, influ- it, most influence. Coercion. Who's the best at coercion? Okay, Not right. Me, so um, we've got a new series um, sponsored by Frank and Risk Management Services. Do we know you said? Do we know who, who have we got coming up on the series? Well, we've got some really, really exciting people coming, depending on how you judge excitement, of course. The most important of which is Russ Timpson, who's with us today, of course. Russ Timpson with us today, yeah. We're going to come back to Russ very shortly. The man is in episode one. We've got Anthony Robson, fire engineering, who's going to be around this series, I think, which is relevant. We've got John Powell coming. John Powell, yeah. We've got um, Echelon for the Hyde Fire Safety Framework we're going to be discussing later in the series. Um, got Lucy Witts, who's going to be discussing Type 4 fire risk assessments. Colin uh, Todd might come. Colin Todd's on the invite list. And Paul Bryant's coming in to talk about his new book. He's written another book. That man writes a lot of books. Yep. Or um, just one and re-releases it. I don't know. So we've got lots coming up in this series. We've got a new feature. We've decided to introduce a uh, fire safety news update for each and every episode. Are these going to be up to the minute or are they going to be historical? I imagine they're going to be very up to the minute. Probably Sky News will be monitoring this to um, just to update their latest bulletin. So we're going to go live to our own Lucy Wits in the newsroom. Okay. Uh, Lucy, can you hear us? Uh, PAS 7 has been published this week as BS 9797 as part of the 999 series. This sets out base requirements for a fire risk management system that comprehensively addresses every article of the regulatory reform order. I think we're going to have to um, have our news reports out on the street in future. I think perhaps we need to a- edit in some background noise so Lucy's news reports come across a bit more authentic. Okay, so we do. So if we just get someone post cut, we're still rolling. Of Gareth, course. Can, can we edit in some background music to new, uh, Lucy's current bulletin? Maybe birds tweeting. Okay, if we can have some outdoor, some birds tweeting, some cars going by, maybe some send sirens. Me to site? 
I'm up for it. Well, Send me to different locations. We will carry on as if you're on site. <laughs> okay, so we've got, the, we've got the sounds coming in. Okay, any more news for us, Lucy? It's been announced this week that prosecutions following Grenfell are unlike, unlikely to take place before 2021. 2021. So, two years away. That's a long time for any... It is judicial process, I suppose. Yep. Lots of people to talk to. Slow old process. Okay, thanks for the update, Lucy. We'll see you again next week. Um, I think it's time to introduce our guests for the week. Tom? So today's guest is um, Russ Timpson, um, who is a friend of the show, of course. So Russ co-founded Horizon Scan in 2012. Um, he's got two decades' experience in the fire safety and aviation sector, including roles such as head of safety at Virgin Atlantic and as the fire strategy manager at BAA. He's a fellow of the Institute of Fire Engineers, an associate member of the Business Continuity Institute and secretary of the Tall Buildings Fire Safety Network. Um, Russ was given the European Strategic Risk Management Award in 2004 and was named International Fire Safety Professional of the Year in 2015. So welcome, Russ. Tom, thank you for reading out my CV. That's very <laughs> kind. That's all right. We didn't embellish it at all. It's That's as it was. So we've also got in the studio with us Anthony Robson, um, Head of Fire Engineering at Franklin Risk Management Services. Um, today we're going to be talking about uh, very broadly fire safety in uh, tall buildings and just picking Russ's brains. Um, Russ, do you want to start off by telling us a little bit about your fire safety and tall buildings network? Yeah, it's uh, it started back in 2009 when I, along with some fellow fire people, including Tom here to my right, um, started getting um, people who were responsible for tall buildings together to talk about current issues. It was a bit like group therapy in a pub to start off with. Um, and it sort of went on from there when we started to have informal meetings, building up to having sort of conference agendas. Um, we've got a LinkedIn presence with uh, around 1,300 people from about 28 different countries. Um, and we've now had a number of major uh, international conference events, including the one this year alongside Firex, um, where we had, I think, about 30 countries represented. So um, there's clearly a massive appetite to ask questions and, and seek knowledge as we build more and more of these tall buildings. And uh, that's what we seek to do. It's, it's really a sort of an information sharing forum where we can talk through issues and compare and contrast what people are doing around the world and try and seek out what's good going forward. So that's interesting. So how do we compare with uh, other countries regarding our fire safety standards? In the media, we see, obviously, there's a lot more coverage of um, fires, certainly in the residential sector um, since Grenfell. We, they, they come to the press a lot more quickly and readily now. Um, does that give us a fair reflection of how we fit in the world? I mean, are, are the fire, sta fire safety standards in tall buildings necessarily better elsewhere in the world? Is there anything we should be understanding from the, the stories that we're hearing? Well, you know, until and before Lacanau and, and Grenfell, I think we would like to think that we set in the pace in the world as far as fire safety is concerned. Clearly the fire statistics were telling everybody that. Uh, I think that was an illusion, personally. Um, there are two really big emissions um, from our own approach here in the UK. The first is obviously to do with uh, suppression systems and sprinklers, um, which you know is one of those issues that goes round and around, and we discuss it. And for me, the second issue is provision of uh, staircases. Um, we are almost unique in the world with our 
the way that we have stuck to a engineering approach that allows us to build single staircases almost to the moon if we wanted to. Um, and when I ask colleagues from around the world, um, they are frankly flabbergasted that we have allowed this kind of state of affairs to to, to, to get to where we are. Um, so I would say, you know, the, the, the fair question is, in some respects, you know, we are quite good, um, but we have some notable emissions and the state of the art is moving so fast that um, if we think about the application of BIM and modern methods of construction, possible uses of timber, the fire industry is five years behind. Um, so we're playing constant catch up. Uh, but I think we do have to address the big questions, the ones I've already spoken about, the use of suppression systems, sprinklers, the alternative means of escape. Um, the the applying what I call the resilience test to any design that's emerged. I mean, will it stand the test of time? Will it stand the hardware and knocks of some of these occupancies that people are in? And think about social housing. Um, and I don't think they do. Um, I think there's good evidence to see now that fire engineering buildings 10 years on are, are not fit for purpose. And it's because the systems are not being maintained. They're not designed to be maintained. Um, and I think we have to think about that going forward. Anthony, your experience as a head of fire uh, engineering, would you sort of concur with um, what Russ is? Yeah, no, definitely. I think a lot of the buildings we build now obviously have some really complicated engineering systems going into them, and the handover of information isn't great, and we all know that. Um, and in the long run, obviously, the information's lost. Nobody knows what the systems are there to do. No one knows how they're supposed to be maintained, um, and the, ultimately, the you know the measures have been put in place to mitigate you know, perhaps extended travel or other things. Um, Aren't you know aren't being maintained? So you've you've got that risk that ultimately the building isn't safe, um, and nobody's quite sure how to make it safe. Um, and I think that's pretty consistent across most sort of heavily fire engineer buildings. Do you think though that um, I mean the, the the issue that sort of Russ um, talks about there in terms of not having a single staircase um, and suppression? I mean ultimately those those issues ultimately point to residential premises, don't they? I mean, that, that's not we, we're not designing mile-high commercial buildings with single staircases and no suppression. That's a it's a residential thing, isn't it? I mean, although above a certain height, sprinklers become a requirement, but the, the requirement in in England anyway to have two staircases doesn't exist unless, of course, there's a justification from a fire engineering strategy perspective. Um, but I mean. What's interesting is that the single staircase concept, although we're relatively unique in that, and the stay put strategy is relatively unique in that respect, I, I, I struggle to, to work out how a dual staircase would work in a residential building in terms of why would we have one? I mean, if it's because there's only a couple of reasons. One is to provide access for fire brigades. Um, the second would be to provide adequate occupancy for egress. The other one would be redundancy, i.e. if one staircase fills with smoke, you've got a spare. But ultimately, the fire engineering principles that we utilise sort of justify a single staircase. Do you think that will change? Um, I'm not sure if it will change or whether there'll be a you know, more robust approach to it, but certainly it's more for redundancy in the sense that if one got smoke lodged, you could potentially escape down the other one. Um, but that obviously having the one stair and keeping it smoke-free relies heavily on fire engineered systems, which, you know, if they're not being maintained, don't work. No, absolutely. So whether we become more robust, obviously the whole gold and thread thing coming through from the Hackett review, 
yeah. whether that's enforced, which means that systems are maintained and understood better. Potentially, yeah. that's one outcome. The other might be that you require two escape stairs. I mean, it's fascinating that Scotland have recently made that change and said we will be having two staircases in residential. And I think what's interesting, we're going to have Colin Todd's going to come and talk about the the change to Scottish building regulations and how potentially that will either influence English regulations or how the English might learn from those regulations. And what I found fascinating is that all of the expert advice that went into that panel said, whatever you do, don't recommend two staircases. But yet there is one. So there must be, it must be a political-based decision if the engineering doesn't support the two staircase principle within residential buildings. Yeah, I think it's great. Whenever you do a fire strategy or you do a fire engineered system, you know, you put it in, the building's just been built, it all works absolutely fantastic and it's great. Go forward 10 years, like Russ said, and it's not quite the same. The people have played around with the system, yeah. the system's not doing what it's supposed to do, and it, it's not what it was designed to be. I think the redundancy of having the second stairs is seems a sensible approach. Yeah. Unless you can somehow force people to ensure that the systems they're putting in are maintained correctly. Well, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a very, very interesting situation, and it's, and it's ever-evolving, isn't it? And it's going to continue to evolve. But what I think is interesting is that what ultimately what we're saying is that the redundancy in the design we're not recommending because we believe there to be an inherent life threat to the way we're building them now ultimately the rec the, the sort of from the opinions i gather from you two it's more about the ability of the owner occupier to manage the building effectively in the future and that's not necessarily because the systems are complicated to a point they can't be maintained but more about the responsible person or the, the managing agent the facilities management or whatever to actually understand why these things are important and what so you, needs you, to happen. You said, you said about the future there, Tom. Is there, are we ever looking at a time when the first building inspector will actually approve a building with no staircases? Can we ever foresee a time when sky bridges and the like will... Well, I, I mean... The, I I remember when 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 Russ sort of formed the the fire the tall buildings fire safety network when it was uh, as Russ so eloquently put a bit of a um a download over a beer about how bad the industry was which was you know getting on for just over a decade ago probably um we the the whole lift evacuation thing was starting to emerge um and there weren't buildings that had a lift evacuation ten years ago but fast forward ten years we do have buildings quite complex commercial buildings that do rely on lifts for the purposes of evacuation. And I suppose Russ can probably talk about a number of those, probably not by building name, but that, you know, that they, that exists. I mean, it's, it's a, is, it, is it only a natural thing, Russ, that I mean, obviously this this takes away the, the assumption that things are going to get more robust based on sort of Grenfell Tower and stuff like that. But do we think that potentially it's just a matter of time when someone says... They don't need staircases. They're just really antiquated. We've got enough redundancy in lifts. We can evacuate people quicker, more efficiently via lifts. We can interconnect buildings with sky bridges. Therefore, you've got an alternative way to get across to a different lift bank to evacuate and sort of separation in those terms. I mean, is it only a natural progression when land price increases? You know, lift um, staircases take up a load of space and cost a load of money in, in commercial space. I mean... Is it a natural progression? Yeah, you're seeing um, you're seeing a lot of designs, and uh, if you look at some of the really 
cutting edge designs now around the world and i'm thinking of particularly in singapore and the far east now where high level interconnectivity you know classically in the petronas towers where you have that classic bridge going between the towers you're seeing and it's not coming around for fire safety reasons it's coming around because people want to interconnect they want to have that community at not just at ground floor level where you go down to the ground floor to get your coffee and meet your people and etc that you can actually migrate through the building at multiple levels and i think you know density urban density is going to increase and i think that interconnectivity is going to lend itself to a sort of a more community feel but just going back to the you know i don't want to be too controversial on this but you know going back to your earlier comments about about scotland and and the and and that decision flying in the face of expert uh, opinion you know a lot of those experts that are out there are marking their own homework they are yeah they don't want they don't they don't want to openly uh necessarily contradict the mantra that we've been banging on about with for 10 15 years and i think it's right it is absolutely right to say you know that we have uh taken it too far these buildings whilst they 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 conform to code and they look great in a fire strategy document and and a design um we have to embrace the the concept of redundancy you know i look as an ex-firefighter i look on the motorways now where we're getting rid of the hard shoulder and we're going to these these laybys you know there's an attack on redundancy everywhere and 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 we all know that there will be at some point there will be there will be a large incident on the motorway and the emergency services won't be able to respond now that's just one small example of elsewhere where you're seeing this and and i think the fire industry has, has gone far too far down down that road where we're coming up with designs which are driven essentially by money let's not let's not dress this up any other way than it should be um which have stripped out virtually all elements of redundancy out of it um and left the manager who's utterly incompetent uh with a building he's bizarrely unaware of its technical specification and we're saying run that building mm. it's yeah, so following on from that, Russ, obviously talking about managers in residential buildings not really knowing what they're doing or supposed to be doing, it's a complete parallel in the commercial sector, is I believe, because there's a lot more money in the industry. They run a simultaneous evacuation, um, but they have all the systems. You know, they get over three floors. They have two staircases. They've got suppression systems. They've got enhanced fire alarm systems. They've got all the redundancy and all the systems. Yet we're not transferring that into the residential sector. Yeah, yeah. The big, the, the big differentiator here that that you know people don't particularly want to talk about is insurance um, these large commercial buildings will have a large commercial insurance coverage going with them because business interruption is is the biggest cost they're going to face replacement of asset replacement of buildings etc is is, a, is on a much lower level uh, and i think that's the reason that's driven it it's money um when we look at social housing um you know, it's done to a cost and it's done to a budget. And by the application of fire engineering principles in the last 10, 15 years since I've been, uh, you know, in the, in the industry, you've seen a, by degrees, driven by statistics, let's not, let's, you know, let's agree that we, a great job's been done in driving down fire statistics. But I'm, you know, in the risk management world, there's the phenomenon of the unrocked boat, and our boat wasn't rocked until Grenfell come along, really. And now it's been royally rocked. And I think we should we should really look uh, root and branch about how we've got to where we've got. And, and, and I think we are in stark contrast to the rest of the world. Is the rest of the world wrong? I would pose that question. Are they wrong? I don't think they are. Yeah, I mean, how much of the rest of the world works with stay put strategy? Um... Yeah, no, it's common. It's common in, in many, many places. Stay put, defend in place, NFPA, you yeah, know, remain in place. It exists 
call it call it another name. Um, but I have to tell you, when I speak to fire chiefs from Canada, North America, even down in South America at the conference this year, Australia, um, <clears throat> and other, you know, in in Dubai, etc., they're just unbelieving that we have got ourselves into this situation. And, you know, if we look at London now, I recently went to New London Architects, there's 541 new buildings planned in London. Most of those are residential. Most of those are going to be single staircase. Now, what are they going to look like in 10, 15 years after they've been built? I can tell you from what I can see, they will be wholly unfit for purpose and by any classification, some of them will be unsafe because the people in the building don't know what how the systems work. Um, and some of the systems just won't work because they won't be tested. And, you know, one, an exemplar of that is pressurised staircases. You know, I've I've been witness to, to many, many, many tests of pressurised staircases post-construction, and they don't work. Mm. But the occupants don't know about that. You know, and that can range from people can't open the doors to the systems are woefully inadequate. So, so the building owners that have these sort of buildings at the moment, Russ, uh, the ones that are already built, I mean, what, what sort of measures should your average sort of uh, housing associations be, be taking? What sort of steps should they be taking at the moment um, that they're not already taking, in your opinion? Well, you know, I'm hoping that we're going to see, um, we're going to see much greater scrutiny of how, pe- how buildings are built, uh, how buildings are then commissioned, and then the competency of the people that are running them. You know, for me, the absolute, I know Hackett talked about the golden thread, but what is absolutely fundamental to it is the competence of the people managing the building. They have to know whether that building is functioning and working and the systems are working. They have to understand it. And, you know, I, I teach tall building fire safety management uh, around the world. And I'm constantly amazed at when I go into some of these buildings, the lack of understanding of even basic principles in the building. They've got no idea. No. Um, and when you ask them about cause and effect, when you ask them about um, basic operation of the lifts, what's the difference between a fireman's lift, firefighter's lift, and an ordinary evacuation lift and a normal passenger lift? So, they so, don't have a clue. So, so is there an issue with the transparency of the knowledge of a building's fire safety? Is, is there something, is there a, a move we should be making as an industry, in, in your opinion, that would make the sort of information that we need to know about a building's fire precautions and, and the fitted systems? How we how we get that information across to perhaps um, either the, the the end users of the building, the residents of the building, the managers of the building, perhaps people that aren't fire safe ha- have any level of fire safety expertise, but are perhaps the most important people who should understand these things. Yeah, I'm. Thank you for the opportunity to tell you about this this an idea. It's called the the fire mark scheme. Um, it's really built on our own history, if you take the fire marks that were used on buildings after the Great Fire of London, um, um, what, I, what, I, what I would like to see is a new scheme which is harnesses the power of consumer interest inside buildings, uh, rather similar to when you walk into a restaurant and you see a hygiene rating on the outside of the building for its cleanliness of food, food preparation, etc. Uh, the fire mark would be a very easily accessible grading system that uh, clients, occupiers, whoever walks in the building will be able to look at it and say, this is a um, one, two, three, four, five triangle building. I've used triangles because obviously they're synonymous with fire, etc. cetera. Um, and uh, I've now um, 
consulted with this with a number of people trying to get some some support. The reason for it is 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 this. I don't believe that the fire industry, notwithstanding the public inquiry, will correct itself anytime soon. So I think we have to think in disruptive ways. This is the era of disruption, and we have to think of ways that we're going to force people to confront the reality of their buildings. So the Firemark scheme is is a simple way that we can put a, an easy-to-interpret um, banner sign in, in, the, in the entrance of a building, rather like the energy efficiency grading system that you're probably familiar with, with portable products and buildings. It's going to be something like that, and it's going to say, this building has this rating. Now, for us anoraks around the table, we could talk for weeks about the relative scoring systems and what equates to what, and that's but that's all fine, and I'm, we'll, we'll do that. You could fill hours of podcasts with discussions about is water mist equivalent to sprinklers, etc. It doesn't mean a damn thing to Mrs. Jones, who's walking into her block of flats and wants to understand why it's a two triangle and not a five triangle. And I think that will engage and hopefully harness um, the consumer who will then start making consumer decisions about their own building. So so would this be a a mandatory sort of government-led scheme or a voluntary scheme? totally voluntary. Um, and already from a number of uh, major entities have said that they are willing to adopt it. Um, You know, I'd like to think that when you go on Google Maps and you Google a building and you get where the nearest restaurant is and you get where the nearest tube station is, that, you know, we can foresee a time. Why shouldn't fire, um, why shouldn't fire be a piece of information that's available. Now, not everybody's going to be interested in it. Is, is the potential um, problem with that approach uh, being voluntary, is that those organisations that had very resilient and very um, proactive fire safety approach are willing to take part in the scheme? Actually, perhaps the more important ones that don't have that positive um, approach to addressing fire safety problems, they're, they're simply not going to partake in the scheme. And really, they're the ones that we want to be identifying yeah i'm I'm hoping that if it gets momentum then those kind of buildings that that don't have one of these things in them um you know there's going to be uh they're going to be lobbied they're they're going to be consulted by consumers who are going to say why haven't you got one um on what is it before i now we know that you know it's policy the united states when they send united states department officials abroad that they have to stay in sprinkled hotels that's that's policy if there's if there's a sprinkled hotel available you know we need to harness consumer power to make changes if we rely on the fire safety industry to correct itself a it's going to take a long time and b i don't think we'll do it to any a, to the extent that we should do given what's happened to us as with like the commercial sector as discussed earlier like the insurers are potentially you know forcing businesses to you know put more systems into their buildings have more redundancy do you think it's potentially going to happen with residential as well given the recent changes and requirements they have for external wall materials for example yeah if we've seen you know some of some of the stuff coming out of australia now with people in residential blocks uh class actions now against um buildings that have been clad and are now you know the occupants are having to pick up huge bills i think there's going to be a lot more interest in in those kind of things and um I can see a lot of this will be insurance related. If you've got a building with a with a high risk panel on the outside, it may or may not uh, fall on the wrong side of regulations, etc. But the point is, it was probably uninsurable, and you probably won't sell it. Mm. See, I think that's the only way it will get triggered. I mean, we talk about 
you know, is it going to be a legislative drive? Is it going to be a consumer drive, like you said? But I mean, ultimately, the insurer are going to be the ones that are going to hold the cards on this. I mean, they hold the cards on sprinkler systems, really, in buildings that sort of traditionally wouldn't need them for life safety reasons. And I think there might come a time one day when maybe the insurer says, you know what, if you've got a building over a certain height or with a certain complexity, whatever they dictate, then you will go through this process. And if you get a three triangle or higher, we'll insure you. If you get two triangles, one or none, then we won't insure you. And that kind of would give the the the, the requirement there for them to look at redundancy. I mean, not necessarily in design, because obviously design will meet new code as it comes out anyway. And I suppose the issue that we talk about is about the the management and that will drive heavily into that triangle system, I guess. But I mean, do you think that if the insurer would be to be the ones that would drive that sort of thing, that that might give it a greater deal of sort of impetus? My, my, my worry is that things like hygiene ratings and energy efficiency stuff, I mean, we see it every single day to the point we're probably blind to it in reality. And I wonder if when you go to eat at a top restaurant in London, if you would you even look at the hygiene rating, would they even put, like show it in a in a in a meaningful way? Um, and in a way, we sort of rely on legislation and code and things like that to shut down buildings that aren't safe or shut down kitchens that aren't hygienic. And do you, do you see that that will affect the way that scheme might may or may not be implemented long term? Well, I, I think we have to give, you know, information is power and we have to give consumers sure as eggs is eggs. You know, if we if we ended up in a situation where this was even reasonably commonplace, that, that, that people will be questioning why haven't you got us, even to ask the question in, say, social housing, you know, why haven't you got one of these ratings on there? I mean, do the people in the box up until very recently, did they know they had to have a fire risk assessment? Did they, did they read it? Of course they won't read it. They need it in an accessible way that they can just look at it and say, okay, I understand that. And uh, it's 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 that rating because it's it's because of the various things inside the building. Um, I, th- I honestly think that's the way to change. If 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 we go down the other road, um, I think it's going to take years, and I don't think we will learn. And f- to be frank, there are too many people marking their own homework. Mm. I think that's a, a really uh, interesting point. Uh, just to finish on there, Russ, I think we could probably develop that into a whole new. Uh, episode later in the series if perhaps you might want to come back and join us can I have a plug fest before I go Uh, you're not going yet unfortunately you're not going yet Russ last series we had our 60 second quiz Um, so we've decided to replace that uh, this series we're going to make it better it's a 90 second quiz thought so okay Um, so uh, Tom I'd like you to volunteer one of our guests to take part in our general knowledge 90 second quiz well I think it would have to be Russ as he is going to uh, he's going to be going and uh, Anthony's going to be doing more episodes later okay Russ are you you willing to take part and and have your shot at the leaderboard Tom will be maintaining a leaderboard through the series only if I can lace my answers with uh, blatant plugs uh we, we, proceed proceed with caution, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Tom, are you, uh, are you on the stopwatch? Time, timer is set. Uh, Tom, standing by the whiteboard, ready to mark up any correct answers that we get. Fingers ready. Okay, are you ready, Russ? Go. In Michigan, it is illegal to chain what to a fire hydrant? Bicycle. An alligator. Where are 40,000 Americans injured each year? Attempting to get on one of my tall buildings courses. Not quite in the toilet. <laughs> in 1987, the Jockey Club disqualified a horse that had eaten what? Uh, is, is it the programme from my next year's conference? A Mars bar. Connecticut, a pickle must do what to be legal? 
Um, so can you repeat the question? Connecticut, a bickle, must do what to be legal? Pass. Bounce. One third of Taiwanese funeral processions include what? Um, is it an advert to come on one of my tall buildings courses? It's a stripper, actually, Russ. In Vermont, women can't wear what without written permission from their husbands? Is it a fire helmet? False teeth. In, I'm not sure I can ask that one. Uh, we'll <laughs> go for it. In Wisconsin, when is it illegal to fire a gun? <laughs> when is it illegal to fire a gun? When is it illegal to fire a gun? When is it illegal to fire a gun? Um, at a church service? During your wife's orgasm. How do... No, I can't ask that one either. In the city, some areas have private flush toilets for who or what? Is it dogs? Pet dogs? It is dogs. Hey, Number one for rock us. Rock and roll. What did people in the Middle Ages throw at the bride and groom? Um, a yurt. Eggs. And time is up. That's one minute 30. Russ, I'm pleased to tell you, you're head of the leaderboard with a grand total of one point. I have a suspicion that might be the winning total for the series. Um, Tom, anything else for this episode? I, I think we, 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 we should um, allow Russ to uh, have a little plug of, um, is it the Tall Buildings Network? or? Yeah, just two quickies. Uh, tall Building course um, that uh, my learned friend, Mr. Gilbert, occasionally contributes to we've got a number of those running next year and we're running them at the fire service college so uh, new for 2020 the course will include relevant live fire demonstrations so if you want to see a sprinkler going off if you want to see a stair pressurization etc we'll be running those uh they're proven to be extremely popular now so a lot of them are already booked up we are going to be running uh, conferences next year alongside FireX. Instead of one three-day event in 2020, we're going to run three one-day events. See what you've done there. Yep. So the first day is going to be tall building fire safe, tall building firefighting. So that's one for obviously the firefighters. The second one is going to be construction fire safety for anybody involved in construction with a slant towards tall buildings. And the third one... Uh, is going to be on crisis management in tall buildings, and that's going to be on the 19th, 20th, and the 21st of May. Uh, early bird discount tickets will be going on sale at the end of this month. That's September. So get online, book them to, to make yourself a decent saving if you want to come to any of those conferences. And um, appreciate the time to come and uh, speak to you guys Russ it's been a pleasure having Thank you on thanks very much for your thoughts and it'd be nice to have you come back uh, later in the series Anthony thanks for coming along as well I think you're coming back uh, in a couple of weeks time to talk about Guidance Note 14 and general cladding experiences yeah looking forward to it mate okay we'll see you then Anthony Tom who have we got on next week's show um, next week we've got um, Aaron John from Echelon and John Powell from Frankham. Discussing the Hyde Fire Safety Procurement Framework. Yeah, the yeah. I mean, tune in for procurement. I mean, crikey, that's going to be hard work. We'll have to really make that exciting. It Dave. will be a good one. We'll make it exciting. We will. Tune in just for the 90-second general knowledge quiz. Absolutely. If nothing else, just force forward to the end of the podcast. No, it won't always be at the end. You have to listen to the whole thing. Well <laughs> done. You won't know when it's well done, be. Anthony. Excellent. <laughs> well done. Okay, thanks very much for listening. Um, if you want to contact us, you'd like to come on the show, you can email us at Dave and Tom at the Open Fire Podcast. Cast.com. Tom, thanks very much for coming along. Thanks very much for turning up just in time. Oh, always a pleasure. I'll, Never see sure. I'll see you next week. You will. I'll definitely be here on time.
podcasts are provided for general information only and should not be treated as a substitute for professional advice or supervision from an appropriate property or built asset professional. Whilst all attempts are made to present accurate information, it may not be appropriate for your specific circumstances and the information presented in a podcast may become outdated over time. Frankham Consultancy Group and its subsidiaries here in Frankham make no warranty guarantee or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the Open Fire podcast. Any reliance on the information provided is at your own risk. Frankham does not assume any liability for the use of, reference to or reliance on the podcast or the information presented within. 